your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. We completed Colossians, if you missed that. <laughs> and we're going to start a journey through Luke starting in January. Luke chapter 4 is where we're going to begin. But I thought it would be fun these next several weeks just to look at some obscure biblical characters from the Christmas story. And so that's the plan of attack that we're going to do. Let's go, Lord, in prayer. Father, we come to you this morning and thank you. Thank you that there is a Christmas to celebrate. You kept your word. It doesn't come back void. And the living word dwelt among us, took on flesh, and we saw his glory. Father, he's dwelling in glory at your very presence, interceding in our behalf. And we have the living word here, these 66 books. Thank you that it pierces the heart. And Father, we pray that this morning as we look at the text that uh, our lives would not be the same. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Every year, 10.2 million, 10.2 million go to view a portrait, a painting hanging on a wall. You know, it's, it's, it's 500 years old. It's, it's not very impressive, though. It's only about 30 by 21 inches small. If you've seen it, it's kind of like, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> Um, the identity of the portrait, the person in the portrait, we're not even sure. Scholars debate, who is she? And yet, it's been described as the best known, the most visited, the most written about, the most sung about, the most paraded work of art in the world. It's Leonardo da Vinci's The Mona Lisa, right? And the Louvre. Gospel of Luke loves to paint portraits as well in a literary sense. And oh, some of them are just as well known as the Mona Lisa. There's Mary, right? Oh, she's so sweet. There's Joseph. But there's some characters along the way, some rather obscure portraits that are probably hung in the back hallway uh, of some individuals that are just as significant, I would argue. And one of those is Mary's cousin, Elizabeth. She's nestled here in chapter one of Luke's gospel. In fact, she and her husband are the first people you meet in the storyline. This gospel opens up. It's, it's, it's who we're introduced to. And so I'd like to do first is to kind of set the scene for those of us who may not be as familiar with Elizabeth. And then we're going to look at the text that was read uh, just recent here uh, by Avery. Chapter 1, verse 5, it says, During the reign of King Herod of Judah, there lived a priest named Zechariah, who belonged to the priestly division of Habijah, and he had a wife named Elizabeth, who was the descendant of Aaron. They were both righteous in the sight of God, following all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blamelessly. But they did not have a child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both very old. They belonged to AARP. Though nowadays, that's not so old. <laughs> well, let me set this scene here so that you can see what's going on because it's so significant. The text, Luke is a great historian. That's our author. We'll talk more about him starting in January. He writes two volumes. It's Luke and Acts. 
that are recorded in the New Testament. And typical historian of the first century, about 30% of his writings include speech. And we'll get to that. And we have even some dialogue that he's recorded in chapter 1. But he loves to give us some pointers. And as, as we look at this, this, as we look at this portrait of Elizabeth from 139 onward, and we go, who is this lady? We first see that she lived during the time of Herod, king of Judah. We know a lot about Herod the Great, right? Usually our response is what? Boo hiss. That was true for some living in Palestine in the first century, but that isn't true for all. In fact, there were many who veered him, and most, I would argue, tolerated and even possibly respected him. He brought great stability to this region in the inner, what we call the intertestament period, 37 B.C. to about 54 B.C. when he died. In fact, he was one of the wealthiest men of the world, and not necessarily because he taxed. He was just a very good businessman. And he was also known for buildings, endeavors. In fact, many you can still see today. If I were to take you to Israel, we could go to his palace at Masada. We could look at his fortress slash uh, palace at what's called the Herodium or the harbor. Where there was no harbor, he builds one at Caesarea. Or you can see remains of what he was known most popular for by the Jews, and that was the temple. He expanded the temple in the first century, the Jewish temple, up to 35 acres, making it the largest religious complex in the ancient world ever, still is the largest. It's amazing. If you go to Jerusalem, you go what's called the Wailing Wall, they call it the Western Wall, you see these large stones, you know, they're praying to. That's because that's part of the temple complex that Herod built. He expanded the platform to allow the, the pilgrims, worshipers, to, to participate. And, and this is the backdrop. The temple, Herod hired 18,000 individuals to build. It took years. They were still building it and when Jesus died, long after Herod the Great had died. And Zechariah is a priest who serves in that temple. That's very significant. We'll get to that in a minute. But this is Pax Romana. It's, it's in Judea, thanks to Herod the Great. There's stability. I mean, you can look at the pottery. Before Herod the Great, it was crude. It was, it was basic. Why? Because they didn't have time to make nice oil lamps and bowls. But under Herod the Great, prosperity flourished. There's great wealth. And so, this is the backdrop. This is the time in which she reigns. So, to argue, well, she is barren because of political turmoil? No. It's been very peaceful during this time frame, for the most part, under Herod. I know he becomes senile and starts to kill his own family. We won't go there today, but all right. And so, it says that also that Elizabeth is married to a priest by the name of Zechariah. Ironic, because his name means Yahweh, or the Lord remembers. <laughs> I wonder how many times that's been hard for Elizabeth to hear. Really? The Lord remembers? <laughs> Where have you been all these years? The Lord remembers. And he's not just any priest. We know of the 24 divisions, which one he belongs to. He knows his lineage well. 
He's a good priest. In fact, he's such a great priest that he did what was recommended in the first century. He marries a priest's daughter because Elizabeth is, a, is from a priestly family. Notice what it says. She is a descendant, and I love this, of Aaron. We don't give her division. Why do we give Aaron's name? Remember Aaron's wife's name? Elizabeth. I mean, she's named after the great priest of, of all times, his wife. Elizabeth. And so here you have, she belongs to a priestly family. She marries into a priestly family. And we're told in verse 6, this is one devout couple. They're very religious. They don't go to the movies or chew gum on Sunday. I mean, they've, or Saturday. <laughs> they got it all together, right? They're very devout. And I would argue obedience affords the opportunity to be used by the Lord. And that's exactly what is going to happen here in the text. You just, the excitement is there, all right? If you didn't know the storyline, what's going to happen as you read this elderly couple? And in fact, that's the next thing we're told in verse 7, they're both old. And you should be going, that sounds really familiar. It should. It's identical in the Greek translation of the Old Testament of a couple named Abraham and Sarah. Also, it was said of Hannah and her husband concerning Samuel. In other words, there is something afoot. Something is moving here. Something very significant. <laughs> yeah, the parallels are being drawn. And, and, and that's what is trying to be seen here. Also, I, I would note that her childness is not a result of sin. Luke's highlighting that here. And that was a problem in the first century. It was assumed, ah, one must be a sinner. Remember the man born blind in John 9? What did the disciples ask? Who sinned, this guy or his parents? It was immediately assumed that if there was a physical struggle, that must be that there was sin. And what does Jesus state in John 9? Neither. It's so that God might be glorified. And with this lady who was up in years, God is orchestrating the events so that he could be glorified. And the parallelism should not be missed. In fact, uh, Zechariah's response when he's told that he is going to give have a child, look at verse 18. Zechariah said to the angel Gabriel, how can I be sure of this? That's the identical statement that Abraham raises when he's told he's going to have a child as well. You must be kidding. <laughs> I'm old. That, that just can't be, right? And I sometimes wonder if they were hoping that wasn't the case. But, oh, all right, Lord, we, we trust you. We look to you, right? And so we, we see these descriptors of Elizabeth. And then you move into the next verse. And it says, verse 8, Now, while Zechariah was serving as priest before God... This is most likely the evening sacrifice at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. It's the altar of incense. This is pretty significant. Well, it's very significant. There were so many priests in the first century that if you had one opportunity in a lifetime to serve in the temple, it was a blessing. And here is, just by chance, Zechariah receives the opportunity. Because notice as he was chosen by Lot, verse 9, according to the custom of the priesthood to enter the holy place of the Lord and burn incense. 
And as you know, in verse 11, an angel of the Lord appears. And verse 13, the angel says to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Scholars debate, what was he praying? Interestingly, the prayer at the altar of incense was for the Messiah to come. For God to bring his salvation and I would argue, I'm not going to go on a, to a firing squad, I think that's what Zechariah was praying. They're old. Why would he expect God to give them a child at this point? What is he praying? Lord, bring salvation to us. And because look what the angel says. Ah, you, Elizabeth will bear a son. You will name him John, which ought to say, wait a minute. John, no, 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 no. Uh, that's not part of our family line. It was anticipated he'd be named Zachy, just like dad, right? Or, or I like the grandfather's name. You don't, John, well, John? Yes, because the name means the Lord is gracious. And he says, joy and gladness will come to you and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great in the sight of the Lord and he will turn many of the people of Israel to the Lord and he will go as a forerunner before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the... What's he saying? This is the salvation that was promised. We read of in the Old Testament, such as in Malachi. The forerunner is come and that forerunner, Zechariah, is your son. Hamana, hamana, right? Here I am praying for salvation and the Lord goes, yep, that's right. You're, you're going to be a part of this. And I have chosen you two. Who am I? Can you imagine Zechariah? That's why he struggles in verse 18. How can this be? <laughs> I'm an old man. My wife is old. He shouldn't have said that, but that's okay. She didn't hear it, right? We're, we're old. And the angel said to him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. I mean, at this point, yikes, right? <clears throat> And as you know, the Lord shows, okay, let me give you a sign. You're not going to be able to speak. We'll take that away from you. And so he comes out, and I love verse 24. It says, after some time, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant. It's just stated succinctly. Oh, yeah, she's, she's pregnant. There, there are no complications there's no qualifiers that are given. We're told simply she became pre uh, pregnant. The Lord keeps his word. Zechariah, as, as told by Gabriel in verse 13, you're going to have a son. And here it is. Elizabeth's pregnant. And I love verse 25. Look at this, this response. Well, first in 24, we're told for five months, she keeps herself in seclusion Probably to, to secret until the proper time. Scholars debate exactly why she does this. But in verse 25, she said, This is what the Lord has done for me at the time when he has been gracious to me to take away my disgrace among people. Elizabeth expresses both relief and joy that the God has acted she observes God's active and personal involvement in her life. Daryl Bach, in his commentary on Luke, says, John may have a special role for Israel, but the child has also met a personal need for Elizabeth. The needs that we have are not always met as we might desire or think, are they? Nor 
Are they always met on our timetable? The Lord knows. The Lord knows our struggles, our sufferings, those unanswered questions that seem to always loom in the back of our mind. The Lord has not abandoned us. As the shepherds heard the angel declare, do not fear. As Elizabeth in all those years, the linens for the baby were put in mothballs or given to other family members. The sorrows, the struggles, all those years. And yet, what does the text tell us? I love this. Don't miss it. What does it say in verse 6? They were both righteous and followed the commandments of the Lord blamelessly. Didn't mean they had, I'm sure they had difficult days. As the days turned to months and the months turned to years, Elizabeth, I'm sure at times thought, wait a minute, I'm, I'm doing what's right. Where is the Lord in all this? The Lord knows. The Lord is gracious. And I love that John is the name. The Lord is gracious. And so, painting this backdrop, we, we now have an idea of who this Elizabeth is and who her husband is. Let's look at verse 26. <coughs> Excuse me. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, that will be repeated twice in the text. This is the text, by the way, that uh, Mother Teresa used when she appeared before the Clintons to argue for uh, pro-life. She said, look at this. Look at the text here. John is only six months old in the womb. Mary's just conceived. And yet John will leap in the womb in presence of Jesus. Powerful text. The angel Gabriel was sent by God. This, this angel's busy, right? He's gone by God to a town in Galilee. So we're down near Jerusalem in the Judean hills is where Elizabeth and Zachy live because they're, you know, they're involved with priestly duties in the temple. But way up north in Galilee is where we find Mary uh, and Joseph, and we're told that they are related. And so it says in verse 36, and look, the angel says, your relative, which is most likely rendered cousin, Elizabeth, has also become pregnant with a son in her old age. Although she was called barren, she is now in her six months. And I love this next line, for nothing will be impossible with God. Salvation comes to humanity. There is nothing we can do to earn our salvation. What are we supposed to do? Nothing. I don't care how good you are. God had to enter time and space. He takes a woman that is beyond years and says, you're going to have a baby. But if that isn't miraculous enough, he says, let me take a virgin, a lady who's uh, probably 11, 12-year-old who has known no one, and she becomes pregnant. God enters time and space for us. And so we get to verse 39, and it's a glorious scene, isn't it? You could just see it. Ooh, Mary goes running into Elizabeth, and it says, In the, those days Mary got up, went hurriedly, it's a sign of obedience, that term, into the hill country to a town of Judah, probably Ein Karim, which is just about five miles uh, due west of Jerusalem, because uh, that's about, according to Jewish historian Josephus at the time, one-fifth of all priests lived there in this little town. And, and she goes to this town, and it says she enters Zachariah's house and greets Elizabeth. Oh, 
it's so good to see you. You're pregnant. So am I. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, and I love this, the baby leaped in the womb. Twice we're told this. Verse 44 repeats it. Why is it so significant that John, little Johnny, leaps in the womb? There's three things. If you're taking notes, you'll want to write this down. Number one, the scene is already fulfilling the prophecy concerning John. What did Gabriel tell Zechariah? Your child, John, is the forerunner to the Messiah. And already in the womb, John is saying, here's the one. This is it. Can't you see it? Calm down, John. Right? <laughs> the Spirit for Luke is a Spirit which reveals, speaks, and guides. John is full of the Spirit. As we study Luke, watch the role of the Holy Spirit in the narrative. It's true in Acts as well. So the scene fulfills prophecy. Secondly, based upon, listen to this, Psalm 58 and Psalm 114, Jewish writings, rabbinic writings, argued that the unborn children sang at the Exodus. And it talks about the babies in the mother's womb breaking out in song. We have a new Exodus in Luke's gospel. The, the, the removal of slavery under the Egyptians is seen in the Old Testament due to the Exodus event there in, under Moses. This new Exodus is a release from the shackles of sin. We, we have a glorious moment. And I, I, I can't help but see that connection, whether it's there or not. The third is there's certainly eschatological overtones. And what I mean by that is a 50-cent word. End times. This is the end. In Malachi chapter 4, there's a very unusual Greek term here for leaping. It's seldom found in Scripture. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's found in Malachi 4. And it says, in the new age to come, we will leap or jump like calves out of a stall, rejoicing. And that's what we see here. The term, I think, is loaded God is keeping his promises. This is the end. And so John, in the womb, leaps. It's a sign of joy. And joy is a major thread in this tapestry of Luke. Turn it over. One of the major threads you'll see, not only the role of the Spirit, is the role of joy. And this book begins with joy, and it will end with joy. It's just marvelous. And so why does John leap? Very significant. I mean, all the, the flags should be going off at this point. This is exciting. Elizabeth gets it. She said with a loud voice, Blessed are you among women. John hasn't leaked for anybody else. Not even his daddy's voice. But you. When you entered this room, it was Jesus. And so you, you get this idea and this declaration. And notice it says she declares in a loud voice in verse 42, which is a sign, of the phrase is used of a, an inspired utterance or a joyful praise. Notice what her declaration details, what Elizabeth declares. First of all, she recognizes the blessing on Mary and her child. As noted by one scholar, Raymond Brown, in his book, The Birth of the Messiah, they do not confer a blessing, but recognize an existing state of happiness, excuse me, or blessing. It's an approving proclamation 
What Elizabeth is saying is, yes, I'm recognizing what my son has already declared. Secondly, notice what Elizabeth says. This is amazing. Blessed is the child in your womb. For who am I that the mother of the Lord should come and visit me? This is a relative. Shouldn't she break out in song and say, hey, you know, I, I know it's great you're pregnant, so am I, you know, this little boy is going to be great. You know, he's just really... No, she, she, she demonstrates unworthiness before the presence of Mary's child. That's a godly woman. It's a woman who understands who this person is, and that is the Messiah. And I have no doubt Zechariah, though he cannot speak, has relayed much to Elizabeth about the scene in the temple, you know, uh, and, and what has occurred. And he's related the role that John will play, and thus this must be the role that Jesus is going to play. He is the Messiah. And so Elizabeth declares her unworthiness. She acknowledges the sign has been given to her by the baby's response. John acted independently of mama. This wasn't because she had bad pizza that John leaped. And finally, Elizabeth blesses Mary for her faith and trust in God. Notice, it's, notice what the text says. I, blessed is the child, blessed are you among women, for who am I that the mother of my Lord? And we need to be careful with that phrase. What is Mary saying? She's not giving deity to Elizabeth is not giving deity to Mary. Elizabeth is focusing upon the child. The title Lord speaks to the role. In other words, you've been given the privilege of being mother of the Davidic king, the Meshua, the Messiah, the one we have waited for. It's a great portrait, isn't it? Far better than the Mona Lisa. <laughs> that thing may be worth $660 million, according to studies in 2013. This one's priceless. This one is amazing. And, and so how do we respond? Let me give you three to hang on your beak today. First of all, the Creator is not bound by His creation. The universe does the Lord's bidding. And I don't know about you, there's times when I've wondered that in the midst of a crazy pandemic. But God is in control of space and time. He created it. He's around it. He's over it. He's in it. He's through it. It doesn't matter. Johnny Erickson Tata, who's paralyzed from the head down, makes this statement. Listen to what she says. Nothing is a surprise to God. Nothing is a setback to His plans. Nothing can thwart His purposes, and nothing is beyond His control. His sovereignty is absolute. Everything that happens is uniquely ordained by God. Sovereignty is a weighty thing to ascribe to the nature and character of God. Yet if it were not sovereign, if He wasn't sovereign, we would, He would not be God. The, the Bible is clear that God is in control of everything that happens. Take comfort. Do not fear. When the nights are long and no answers appear in sight, God is in control. When the enemy seems to prosper and justice seems to be a fantasy, he is in control. When life struggles never seem to end, he is in control. When you have more questions than answers, he is in control. When your prayers seem to fall on deaf ears, he is in control. Just ask Elizabeth. Just ask Zachariah. 
Can you imagine <laughs> Elizabeth coming out of the bathroom? Uh, Zachariah, I'm pregnant. It can't be. It's what the angel said. How can it be? And then for Mary, who should have been stoned, becoming pregnant in the betrothal period, rejoices. The creator is not bound by his creation. Secondly, salvation can only be obtained by God's grace, never through human effort. There's a quote in your, your notes there by Packer. He says, the Christmas message is that there is hope for a ruined humanity, hope of pardon, hope of peace with God, hope of glory. Because at the Father's will, Jesus became poor and was born in a stable so that 33 years later, He might hang on a cross. Every time I see a manger scene, I want to just spray across it grace. Just as God reached through time and space and used this elderly woman from the outskirts of Jerusalem, He's extended grace to us. He may not be granting us a child, but He's called us a child of His by placing our faith in Him. The portraits of Elizabeth and Mary clearly indicate that our salvation could have never, never been attained on our own. It was God's plan. And finally, as I read and look at this portrait of Elizabeth, true faith results in trusting the Lord even when the circumstances make no sense. The one who is the Savior, the Messiah, and the Lord can, is capable, and has assured us He will keep His promises. This Christmas season, turn to the Lord. I think perhaps despite many of the problems of a pandemic, the good thing is it's slowed us down a bit. <laughs> it's stripped back a lot of the busyness of life. And it affords us an opportunity to stare into the face of God and to trust. Do not fear, the angel declared. Do not be afraid. <laughs> we can rest in the one who is our Lord, our Savior, and our God, where we can find rest, peace, hope, and joy. Because as Mary stated, nothing is impossible with God. <laughs> Father, Thank you for these portraits nestled in the text. They're familiar territory, and it's easy to glance over them and say, oh yeah, I know the Christmas story, and on we go and sing a couple carols. It's good just to pause, to revisit with a fresh look at individuals who played a key role in the Christmas story. Because without John, you can't have a Messiah. You have to have a forerunner. Malachi was clear. Isaiah 40 was clear. John came to deliver a message, to call for repentance, for calling for a people to purify themselves in preparation for the coming one, the Messiah. 
the Lamb of God. Elizabeth, elderly, obscure. You won't find her in any other history book. Nestled in a small village with few even archaeological remains today plays a vital role. In your grace and in your sovereignty, you use this lady for your glory. Father, that's our prayer. This Christmas season, we don't want to be obscure figures in the manger set. We want to be used mightily for you to relate the Christmas story, to testify to your goodness and your grace, and to trust. Help us, O Lord, to claim the words of that angel, do not fear. We thank you. We praise you for that little one that you allowed to come to earth who humbled himself, taking on the form of humanity, was placed in a manger, needing his diapers changed, depended on his creatures to sustain him as he grew physically and knowing full well what lied before a cross. Thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.